we're really going to be in verses 8 through 12. But a big focus this morning is going to be on verse 9. And so that's what's on the screen. But you can go ahead and be turning there. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you this morning, I'd encourage you to find one of our Bibles on the back of the pew in in front of you and follow along. Um, It is 1 Timothy. You can look in the table of contents and find it's 1 Timothy and chapter 3. That's where we'll be reading. Uh, A few announcements while you're turning there is that Sharon Godfrey went to the hospital last night, and many of you know that because you received the call. Um, As of this morning, she is home. She had a number of tests. And the tests show that everything seems to be okay. And so we, we appreciate your prayers for her. Um, a couple other things just for you to be aware of before we go into the sermon. First of all, we actually won't be doing that pool party for, um, for the kids next week. We'll be putting that off maybe to the week after. We'll have to see about the schedule. There is going to be a big service at Glenwood Baptist Church. It's called Unite, and it's a countywide service for uh, kids who are in school and then for those teachers, and it's a time just of worship, uh, being united together as one uh, group of God's people, and we're praying for those kids as they go off to school. We're praying for the teachers as they go and minister to those kids at the school. So that's a time particularly for uh, school-age kids, their families, and teachers. We want to encourage everybody to consider going out 5 o'clock at Glenwood Baptist Church. If you remember, we hosted that event here last year. So It will be at Glenwood this year. Won't you consider that? And finally, um, this is just a a personal appeal from the pastor to to encourage you to consider a ministry opportunity that we have, which is the Good News Club. I've shared about it before, so I won't share with it. I won't go into detail about it this morning. But we have an opportunity at PG Elementary to do Good News Club, which is a a Bible study and a, a way of teaching the gospel to these young kids. We have three volunteers so far. We're needing at least six. If you would consider, maybe if the Lord is calling you um, to come and take part in that, it takes about an hour, hour and a half of your week. And so um, if you're interested in that, please let me know. We would love to be able to uh, send a team over there and make that a big part of the ministry we do to our community. So we will be in 1 Timothy 3. I'm going to start at verse 8. Paul is giving the qualifications. He's telling Timothy, here's what it looks like for the church to be in order. Here's what the church should look like there in Ephesus. So he has given the qualification for overseers. And an overseer is just one of the three terms that's used for a pastor. Um, either the overseer, uh, an elder, or a, de- or, a, or a pastor. Excuse me. So pastor, overseer, elder. Three terms for one office. The office of the pastor. Some churches call it the elder. It just depends. And then we find, though, a second office that he speaks of here, and that's the one of the deacon. Here's what he says. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything, Deacons are we husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. And to finish up the paragraph, those who have served well as deacons acquire good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word of God. Let's pray. Fathers, we consider your words to the deacons this morning. 
We want you to help us to understand. We want these men who are about to be ordained into uh, the diaconate, the ministry of the deacon, um, we ask for, for you to just help them to understand what these words mean for them this morning, for those men who already are deacons and are currently serving as deacons or have been ordained as deacons in the past. We ask that this would be a means of encouragement and reminder for them. For those men who sit in this congregation who maybe aspire to such an office, and we have seen times where Paul speaks of aspiring to a certain office and speaks of it in a positive way. Lord, we, uh, we ask that those men, you would, you would be guiding them and leading them and helping them consider whether or not their lives match up to these qualifications. We ask that as a church, you would help us to understand your role for pastors and deacons and just your role for the church in general. Help us to grasp what it is that you, how it is you intend us to live and operate as a church. May we do it right if there are places where we need to work on it and, and shore things up and consider what your word says, would you lead us into that humbly, Lord? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said this morning, we're going to be doing an overview of 8 through 12 and really honing in, zooming in on verse 9. But so our main idea then for this sermon, especially with verse 9 in view, is this, that deacons must know and live the gospel. Deacons must know and live the gospel. Now, a deacon is a servant. That's what this word means. It just means one who serves. And the deacon is to be a model of service within the church. See, every single person is called to be a servant. We could go all through, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to, because this has to be short, and you know that I struggle with that. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through every, every passage, but just to say, you are supposed to be serving one another within the church. That's the goal, that's the point, that's how we operate as a church. We should be serving. But deacons are to be those men who are the lead servants, who lead in the serving, who have been doing a good job of serving, so we say, we want you to actually take the reins on the serving of the church. As we walk through this passage, we're going to see that deacons must be exemplary models of a few things. And so this is going to be on our slides here. The deacon must, first of all, be an exemplary model of personal character. And we see that in verse 8. He says they must be worthy of respect. Some translations say grave. The idea here is one who is not frivolous in what they do. Their demeanor is one that is deserving of respect. They take things seriously. They take the life of the church seriously. They must be worthy of respect or respectable. Secondly, they must be, or must not be, excuse me, hypocritical. Now, hypocritical is a pretty good word for this. Literally, this means double-tongued, though. It's the idea of having two tongues. When we talk about having two tongues, we don't mean that there's something medically uh, wrong going on, right? But that person who has two tongues can say one thing in one setting and in another setting say something totally different. We would be in a, quite a mess if for us we had deacons who were in, in the deacons' meeting saying one thing whenever out in the congregation they were saying another. Whenever secretly with one or two friends they were saying another and those things are going against one another. That would be a problem. And that is essentially what it means to be hypocritical. To present yourself one way to actually be another. Secondly, there needs to be self-control there. And it's a certain type of self-control actually. He says not drinking a lot of wine not given to drunkenness, to have the kind of Christian maturity that it takes 
to be able to say, well, I've had enough. Finally, not greedy for money. This makes sense because there's so much that the deacon does as they aim to help the pastor in the work of the ministry. As the pastor aims to do what the apostles did in Acts chapter 6, which is to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and of prayer. So because of that, there's a lot of things where the pastor says, I need you to go and do this. To go deal with this issue of benevolence. To deal with this issue of decision making as regards something financial. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to come to the conclusion of why that could be a problem if you're dealing with the finances, but you're greedy for money. For them, as they walked around dealing with benevolence issues, they just had a little leather uh, satchel on their belt that had the coins in it. It'd be so easy just to reach in your hand and pick out a coin, and no one would be the wiser of where it went. So the deacon must be exemplary models of personal character. Secondly, they must be exemplary models of spiritual life. Verse 9 tells us what this means, and we're going to come back to it, but just to, to let you see for a minute, he says this, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So we'll come back to that. Verse 10, deacons must be exemplary models of Christian service. He says in verse 10, they also must be tested first. If they prove blameless, they can serve as deacons. There's an idea here of taking a man and testing them and seeing, is this person living up? There's a testing that should be happening all throughout. As we consider their lives, there should be a testing that happens. And we say, well, what have they been like up to this point? Have they actually been serving the church? And then there should be, whenever they become, be, or whenever they are considered deacons, to look at them and say, well, someone has said that this person should be a deacon. Let's take a moment and see, are they actually doing this? Are they really serving within the church? We want to see the reality of service in their life. They must be exemplary models, fourthly, of moral purity. Now, we can look back at verse 8 and see these things are are issues of moral purity, right? Um, Not hypocritical, self-controlled as it relates to um, drinking, not greedy for money. But another thing comes up here in verse 12, and that's the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, this is something that has been... I apologize for that. Something that has been uh, a point of contention for a lot of people and lots of concern has been had over this. Uh, There's a lot to get into, and this could be a whole sermon to think through. I want us to understand this morning, though, this, that what literally is the the wording underneath, the husband of one wife, is literally that of a one-woman man. A one-woman man. See, many people take this and and say, well, this must be about divorce. This must be about if a man has been divorced, then they can't be a deacon. It seems that there's much more going on here than just that. There's the possibility of polygamy in their day. And a man could actually have more than one wife, not just in his lifetime, but at the same time. But on top of that, I want you to consider something else beyond the fact of divorcing or the fact that this could be about divorce. See, a man could be married to his first and only wife and could very well not be a one-woman man. Do you know anyone like that? Don't point any fingers. But just, you, like, you just think about it, okay? A man can be married to the only wife that he's going to be with his entire life and not be a one-woman man. It is very possible. By the same token, a man could be on a second marriage due to death his wife leaving him in a divorce that even Jesus says is permissible. 
and still be a one-woman man. The only thing I'll say to this, and we won't get into it today, but there's another day that we may get into it, is that Paul had a way, a means of saying not divorced under any circumstances. But he didn't. He chose the idea of a one-woman man. Finally, the deacon must be an exemplary model of home life. He must be able to manage their children and own households competently. The reason is, if they're taking on the responsibility of managing aspects of the ministry of God's church, if they can't do it at home with a handful of kids who love them, should love them, how are they going to do it in a church full of people who they may have conflict with, where things may get messy? They must be able to manage their children and their households competently. Now, for this morning, for our purposes, I want to zoom in on verse 9 and just consider for a few moments holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So often we're so concerned with, and, and for good reason, concerned with the moral qualifications of a deacon. And maybe sometimes we're not even concerned about that. We're just concerned about, will this person further my agenda in the church? And I'm going to put their name down for that. We should, however, be concerned with the moral, spiritual qualifications of that person. But so often we just say, well, they're not really known for being a sinner. They're not really known for running around with their wife. So, yeah, good. Check, check the box. They're good to go. But here we see one that never gets much play, at least in services and ordinations that I've been in. And that's that they hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. A deacon is only as good as the point to which they are informed by the gospel. Their ministry is only God glorifying to the point in which it is not in their own power and wisdom, but in God's. And the wisdom that comes from his gospel. We must be informed by the word. We must desire to do ministry out of a heart for God's gospel. Not out of a desire to make ourselves look good, to fill in... Uh, an empty spot on the resume to help us be more successful in business. And we can say, well, I, you know, I'm a deacon, or be glad that people say, well, he's a deacon over there at PG Baptist. This is why, actually, we present Bibles to our deacons. Maybe it's not been in the past, but for me, this is why I want to present Bibles to deacons, because out of all these things, I think the most important is that they hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let's walk through that phrase for just one moment. To hold to it. Not just to be open to the mystery of the faith. Not just to believe it vaguely. But to hold to it. To put your hope in it. To say, I'm not letting go of the good news of the gospel. It informs every single thing that I do as I lead and serve in this church. So they're holding. And what are they holding to? The mystery of the faith. The mystery of the faith is a way that Paul describes the gospel. There was something, aspects about the gospel that in the Old Testament were not fully revealed, not fully grasped, but now that mystery has been revealed. He still calls it the mystery of the gospel. It's God's revealed truth about how he wants us to live in light of Christ's death on the cross for us. Unfortunately, we fail to live up to that, and now he saves us from those eternal consequences so we must hold to that mystery of the faith. And finally, though, it must be done with a clear conscience. See, there are many folks who grasp the mystery of the faith, who maybe hold to it in theory, but it's not with a clear conscience. 
The problem with knowing God's Word and knowing the Gospel better and better every single day, or aiming to do that, is that the more that you know, the more all of a sudden you become responsible for that. See, whenever you read God's Word, and He says to love your enemies and pray for those who do bad things to you, and you know that now, all of a sudden, there's that conviction, that conscience, also known as the Holy Spirit, pipes up and says, hey, I know that person's being just like terrible to you, but you need to love them and pray for them. All of a sudden, there's something going on there. And to deny that and to go against it means that you can't have a clear conscience. Brian, Larry, our deacons, you've been called to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The question for you and for every deacon in here is this. Do you know the mystery of the faith? Do you truly know it? I don't mean you grasp every technical nuance of it, because I don't, and I would say that no human does. But do you hold it with a clear conscience as you grasp more and more of God's gospel and his good news of the grace of Christ who saved us from our sins? Do you look at it and say, I need to live in light of this? Or do you say, well, that's nice and good, but it's not for someone like me. I'm going to live my life the way I want. You have to understand, Brian, Larry, every deacon in here, you are going to need the mystery of the faith. You need to hold on to it because you have to understand the gospel. You're going to be confronting or confronted with situations where you're comforting someone who is sick, who is dying, and they may not know the gospel. And as you make that visit, it may be that they've been in this church every single Sunday, but it's never clicked for them. The Holy Spirit's never opened their eyes to the truth of the gospel. And there you are for such a time as that. And God has put you there in that role where you're supposed to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience so that you may say, this is the good news of Jesus. This is what it means to know him. It may be that you're comforting the family of someone who has passed away. And you're telling them, this is the hope that they had. We as Christians don't mourn like those who have no hope. Instead, there is hope. Maybe you need to help someone understand God's love for them. As you go and you show them love in some practical way, you go and build a ramp for them. You go and deliver food to them. You go and fix their air conditioner. Whatever it is. And maybe for them they say, why would you do this? Please don't ever say it's just because I'm a good person. It's not. It's the grace of God to you that's led you to do that. That is what's good about you is that God has shown you grace. And because he has loved you and sacrificed for you, you sacrificed your day to fix their air conditioner or whatever it is. Maybe as a leader in the church, you've been asked for counsel. They've come to you and someone said, listen, you're a deacon. I need to know what to do in this situation. And maybe, just maybe, Ethan's on vacation. And you can't punt that over to me. Or it's that in that moment right then and there, they need you to tell them something in that moment. For moments like that, that you need to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Or maybe, and finally, it's in making decisions as that group who is making decisions for the church. And understand this, that one day, because you've taken on that role of a leader, Hebrews 13, 17 says to the congregation to submit to and obey those leaders who God has put over you. Because one day they're going to answer to God for your soul. The spiritual decisions that we make as a church, as a deacon body, as those who, are in, who hold certain offices within the church, those spiritual decisions that we make 
to disciple someone, to bring someone into membership, to put someone under discipline, to do whatever it is that we do, are ones for which we're going to answer one day to God. We answer for their souls as leaders. And for me, I know that I can't do that in good conscience if I'm not holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. John Calvin said this about the office of the deacon, especially as it relates to the mystery of the faith. It would be exceedingly absurd to hold a public office in the church while they were ill-informed in the Christian faith, more especially since they must be frequently be laid under the necessity of administering advice and consolation. For you to do your job to the fullest extent is not to say, all right, good deal, fix your air conditioner, see you later on Sunday. That's only part of the job. But it's to administer advice, consolation, grace, counsel, in light of the gospel to those folks who you are serving. Our final thoughts are this before we go to our time of ordination. And it's this, that everything here is not unique to the deacon. There are none of these things that we're called to do, that you're called to do as deacons, that are not true for all Christians. All Christians should be aiming to be worthy of respect, to take seriously what they're doing, to not be double-tongued, to not be drinking a lot of wine, to not be greedy for money, to understand the gospel, to be true to their spouse, to raise their children right and run their household well. Everything here is not unique to the deacon. So for you, Christian, who feel like you've, you've had a, a good sermon where your toes haven't been stepped on too much, understand this. This all is for you. You have been called, as we spoke about last week, to make disciples. And it will be impossible to make disciples unless you hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. If you don't know what the gospel is, it may be that you don't know Jesus. If you don't know what the gospel is, how can you fulfill the calling to tell other people about it? How can you serve other people the way Christ served you on the cross and gave himself up for you on the cross if you don't know that he did it and how he did it and why he did it? All Christians should do these things, but deacons must. So deacons understand that. This is something that is a call for all Christians, but for the deacon, they must do these things. For the deacon, you must hold to the mystery of the faith. Hold to the gospel with a clear conscience knowing that you are doing what you can to put your hope and trust in Jesus and to tell others about him as you go. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we consider your words, our prayers, that that would be true of all of our deacons, Lord, that you would help them. You'd give them a desire. You'd give, our, first of all, our whole congregation a desire to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, that you are give our whole congregation a desire to know your gospel and to live in light of your gospel. And whenever we don't live in light of your gospel, that our conscience, your Holy Spirit, would trouble us and cause us to say that I can't be unforgiving to this person because you've forgiven me. I can't be unloving to this person because you loved me when I did so many things worse than them. Whatever it is, Lord, help us to live in light of the gospel with a clear conscience, that we will not be able to say, Christ died for this sin, and I'm going to love that sin that killed my Savior. May it be true of every person here, but may it especially be true of our deacons. May they be men of the Word. And even though their role is not one that's explicitly one of teaching, like that of the elder, the pastor, 
Lord, may you give them a passion, a desire, a conviction. May you not give them any rest unless they are digging into your word on a daily basis so that they may do what you've called them to do here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 9. And may it be not just for their good, but for the good of this church. That we may be a church that grows in your word, that does everything that we do, not because we think it's a good idea in our own wisdom, not because we've done it that way before, not because someone explained it as a good way, but because it is from your word that you have said, do church like this, live life like this. Lord, we love you. We ask for you to, your Holy Spirit to help us to do these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.